Awesome. Thank you guys so much for worshiping with us. Um, I mentioned at the very beginning about, uh, I confess that I don't like the stuff that is best for me, right? Well, one of the things I've noticed about people in general that they really don't like is I've noticed that people really don't like whenever churches talk about money. Why well, have another confession? This is confession number two already in our service this morning, right? Here's the confession. I don't like talking about it either. And I don't like when other churches talk about it. It makes me uncomfortable. It, one of the big reasons is because we've heard a lot of churches talk about money in a way that was really not the heart of God or it was super like all about rules and controlling or it was really manipulative and like promise stuff that we know isn't the heart of God. And so I, I get some of the apprehension. But here's the thing about me not liking to talk about money. I don't not like this because I don't think it's good for us or because I don't think it's healthy or because I think it's beneficial or because I think it's biblical or because I think it will help us. No, the reason I don't like it is just because people get so weird about it. Well, whenever money's talked about by a church, people are just so weird. But I heard an awesome thought from Judah Smith a couple weeks ago. He said this, when approaching the scriptures or approaching faith, the amount of time God gives to a particular subject, we ought to give to a particular subject. He says that should be like a, a rule or a, like a, a thing that we always come back to whenever we're thinking about stuff in faith. The amount of time God gives to a subject is the amount of time we should give to a subject. If God gives a whole lot of time to the topic of grace, then we should devote a lot of time to the topic of grace. If God spends a lot of time on forgiveness, we should spend a lot of time on forgiveness. If God spends a lot of time on hope, then we should spend a lot of time on hope. If God spends a lot of time on peace, then we should spend a lot of time on peace. And here's the deal. He does, and we should. But way more than he spends on any of those topics, God spends a ton of time talking to us about money, which means we shouldn't be so afraid of it. And we shouldn't be so uh, of avoiding of this topic. More than half of the recorded parables of Jesus, 16 out of 29, deal with our heart's perspective towards money. In, uh, in the synoptic gospels, the gospels that, that really follow the life of Jesus, it's the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in those gospels, one out of every six verses talks about money. And in the New Testament as a whole, one out of seven verses deal with the topic of money. But when it comes to saving faith, we're saved by grace through faith, right? Huge topic throughout the Bible. As a matter of fact, it's a topic we'll talk about in a few weeks. We were going to talk about it this morning in our uh, These Three Remain series, Faith, Hope, and Love. Uh, we're just going to delay that for a couple of weeks. But that, that idea of faith, man, it's huge. Like it's all over the heart of God, right? But at the end of the day, there's less than 500 verses in the Bible that talk about faith. Well, what about prayer? God talks a ton about prayer. And a bunch of the Bible are prayers. But it's just over 500 verses that deal with prayer. But when it comes to God's heart about money, there's over 2,000 verses. This is a, a huge conversation with God because 
man, it's a really good diagnostic about our hearts. And God loves us so much that he's always after our hearts. And here's the thing right now, it's all about getting COVID tested, right? To make sure that, you know, you found out you've been exposed. You want to make sure you don't have it or, or whatever the case may be. And there's different kinds of tests, right? Like at the end of the day, there's the rapid test. And then there's the test they have to send off and you wait for the phone to ring. And I think the reason God talks so much about money is it's the rapid test that shows us how our heart's doing in regards to him. Because nothing reveals our hearts quicker than our attitude towards money. So let's not be afraid of it and let's not avoid it because God didn't. Let's grab our Bibles and see what he has to say. If you don't have a Bible with you or if you're following along on your phone and that's what you use, no worries. Uh, the verses will be here on the screen. Uh, but we still want to say our creed together as we dive in to make sure that our hearts are united in this. Here we go. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you so much. Please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. What we're going to do is we're going to read uh, these first handful of verses and then we're going to go back through and just walk through each verse together for our time together today. Beginning in verse number 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. So he wants to tell a story. I want to tell you, church at Corinth, about a group of churches in Macedonia, about how God's grace was moving in them. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, just to make sure we're all on the same page here, the generosity he's talking about here is a, an offering being given for the, the believers, the Jesus followers in Jerusalem. They were facing immeasurable hardships. They were facing uh, profound difficulty, persecution, starvation. They were absolutely in a horrible situation. So the Apostle Paul had been asking all of the churches where he had influence, hey, let's just do what we can. Let's see if we can't help out our brothers and sisters who are really hurting today. As a matter of fact, the twice in the book of Acts, uh, Luke talks about this offering that the Apostle Paul spent a lot of energy talking and writing about. He mentioned it in the book Philippians. He talked about it in First uh, and Second Thessalonians. He talked about it in, in other books of the Bible in addition to here in Second Corinthians. This is a big deal to the heart of the Apostle Paul that they would help out people who are hurting in a, in a legit, tangible way. And he says this is what the churches of Macedonia did. Uh, it overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Verse 3, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. He's talking about those people who were hurting so bad in Jerusalem. They wanted to send relief to them. Verse number 5, and this... Not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And then he's going to give a little information here, but it has a piece of, of information in that that's helpful for us. He says, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, he should complete 
among you this act of grace. Titus was collecting the offering. We told him to complete the, he's already calls it the act of grace. Verse 7, but as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel, here's the same phrase again, in this act of grace also. So I want to begin by, by looking back this morning at, at verse number one, and, and we'll jump in here. He's talking about the grace of God given among the churches of Macedonia. So real quick, who are the churches of Macedonia? When, when he talks about Macedonia, he actually doesn't mean the country of Macedonia. Uh, if you know your geography very well, uh, you know that in the south part of the Balkans, uh, just north of Greece, is Macedonia. But he actually more means what we would call today Greece. He probably means that whole region. He means Greece and all of the Balkans. Specifically, he's talking about three churches, uh, we believe, that were part of Paul's second missionary journey. He's talking about the church uh, at Philippi, which is where uh, we have the book of Philippians that he wrote to them. He's talking about the church at Thessalonica. We've got two letters to the Thessalonians. And then he's talking about the church at Berea, who clearly needs to get their act together because they didn't get a letter in the Bible. And like Thessalonica got two, so they need to step up their game here. But those are the churches that he's talking about, about how they uh, were so generous to give in this way. And and the reason I mention these churches and kind of where they are is we know a lot about them. And, And there's three things we know about them that I think help connect us to the story. Here's the first thing I want to observe about the churches in Macedonia. They were surrounded by affluence. Like they were surrounded by healthy, wealthy business and industry. So from the Balkans, just north of them, was a whole lot of timber. And in the Balkans, there were these precious metals that they were able to sell. They were able to collect and sell them and send them all around the whole known world. It was really Good business for them. Uh, Some of us have been in the Balkans together in Kosovo. We've seen the beauty of that region. There's a whole lot of timber, right? And uh, back then that was a huge deal. Like that was one of the biggest businesses that there could be. And so they were surrounded, even though they were in a difficult time as a church, they were surrounded by one of the wealthiest parts of the world. Here's another description of their life. They were surrounded by political division. As a matter of fact, historically, this is called the barbaric north. (laughs) That's what historians call this part of the world at this time in history. That There was tremendous division between the Macedonians and the Greeks, and there was all kinds of battle and all kinds of warring for political power. And that's all I'm going to say about politics today. There was a lot of division, and there was a lot of battle. Here's the third description of that area. Not only was it wealthy around them and really divided politically, they felt like spiritual outcasts. They felt marginalized because of their faith. What we know about that Greek mindset is that part of the world was really open to every religion except for the one about Jesus. <laughs> like you can worship anything, you can follow after anything, you can believe whatever you want to believe. It's not as long as it's not about Jesus of Nazareth which is what we see in a lot of places in the world today and even increasingly among ourselves is there's tremendous uh, freedom and openness and, and we're, we're really kind to a lot of other faiths, but 
there's this stigma with the followers of Christ. And I think those descriptions are important for us to have the stage set for why their story does kind of still, almost 2,000 years later, connect with our story. So that's who they are. Let's talk about what it was that was so noteworthy, why their story has survived all these years. And what I want to do this morning is, is I want us to, to look at verse number two, and we're going to examine some Macedonian math. Those of you who know me well know how terrible I am at math, but this is actually pretty exciting this morning. Um, this is the kind of math that actually gets me fired up. Look at verse number two. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Are you kidding me? Like, look at this again, and, and, and let's let's do a good math equation, okay? We're, we're going to do one plus one plus one plus one here, right? We're, we're going to work through this, right? So we see the first description here is this severe test of affliction, severe affliction. And then, doesn't seem to fit, we have an overflow or an abundance of joy, and then we have extreme poverty. Like, how do these things go together, right? Because because he's talking about a lot of pretty pretty heavy stuff here. That that idea about severe test of affliction. Severe doesn't just mean bad. It also means often. <laughs> like it wasn't. Oh, I had a bad year. This is like the repeated theme of it's really bad. That word severe both means bad and frequent. <laughs> That's a severe test. Of, of, and the word affliction literally just means pressure. Like it's this word that means to to weight down. It's a word we see a whole lot throughout the New Testament that always seems to deal with people being uh, pressured down because of their faith. In the middle of that is this abundance of joy. That word abundance literally means like super abundance. It means like more than abundant. It means overflow. It, it means spilling over. And then we have extreme poverty. And man, the, the word extreme there literally means profound. Or the best description of that poverty is it's like, right? It's like mind-blowing how difficult their poverty was. As a matter of fact, it's one of those cool picture words in, in the New Testament that literally means uh, down to the depth poverty. Or the way we would say it nowadays is like they hit rock bottom. Like it's rock bottom poverty. And that results in an overflow of a wealth of generosity. How in the world is that possible, right? So I want to call this our generosity sandwich, right? Like we've got this awful pressure, severe affliction, and this rock bottom poverty, extreme poverty, sandwiched in between abundance of joy and like, not just an abundance of joy, an overflow of joy. So our sandwich here is more like a sloppy joe sandwich or something where like when you put it together, it just squeezes out the sides and makes a mess everywhere, right? Like you, you need to, to keep this in the package while you're eating it because it's going to make a mess. This is the overflow. This is our generosity sandwich here. And the question that I think as we look at this Macedonian math that has to be asked this morning is, how is that possible? Like when I'm facing a like severe, frequent, repeated pressure, and when I feel like I've hit rock bottom, I'm just telling you the thing that overflows out of me isn't joy that results in generosity. 
Matter of fact, in those moments, I tend to be the most taking. I'm like, I don't want to give anything to anybody. I need some me time. I mean, it's literally how we talk about it. How in the world is it possible that these group, this group of churches, like they're not even doing daily life together. We're talking different cities. And yet the same work of God in their life produced this generosity sandwich. I'm just telling you, I want to know what makes Macedonian math work. Because in my life, I don't have a calculator that makes those set of circumstances result in an overflow of joy that leads to an overflow of generosity. How does that happen? Here's two reasons that I believe, based on the story, that this became their legacy. And the first one is this, the grace of God. Like it's only God's grace in us that we can be under pressure and at rock bottom and still have an abiding joy, even in that pain. That joy that overflows to the point that even when we're at rock bottom and feeling under pressure, we want to help somebody else who's hurting too. That's the grace of God at work in us. Like I don't think we do that on our own. I don't think we produce that, which is why this whole text began with, hey, I want to tell you about the grace of God given to these people. And then look with me at verse number three, because I think this wording's cool. He says, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. There's actually no such thing. Like the only way I can give beyond my means is if I steal something from you or if I'm going in debt. Right. Like I, I can't give beyond my means. Dave Ramsey's always telling everybody live below your means. Right. Because if you don't live below your means, you're going to be borrowing to make up the difference. Right. And here the Apostle Paul's like, man, they gave beyond their means. Here's the deal. If you ask me today, if you can borrow my Lamborghini, the only way that happens is if someone else gives me a Lamborghini that I could then let you borrow, right? Which, by the way, I'm not that generous. God's grace has not worked in my life that much. If somebody gives me a Lamborghini, no, you can't drive it. But anyways, like the only way that that's possible, the only way to give something that you don't have is that somebody's given it to you. (laughs) It means that something else outside of them was doing something extraordinary in them that could overflow to be beyond their means. Because I'm just here to tell you, man, When we see somebody who's hurting and we give to that need, I don't think we can outgive the generosity of God. He's going to work through that. He's going to give more. He's going to provide. That's the promise of the generosity of grace. Grace produces generosity. And so I do encourage that we should live below our means. But when it comes to grace, we're free to give beyond our means. Meaning, we don't see this as ours. God's given me more than I ever could have gotten on my own. And I give out of that abundance. Does that resonate with you? That resonates with me. Like, I don't believe what I have, I earned. It's the work of God's grace in my life. And so when I give, I'm not giving my stuff. It came from Him. And that, that gift is just an overflow of His grace at work. In my life. If I only give. uh, If I can can give. Beyond my means. That means I'm actually now living in grace. That's beyond me. And grace is the only way. To walk in true generosity. And and really. I I don't want to talk about money. 
And I don't want to talk about giving. <laughs> like in this context, I want to talk about generosity. Because generosity goes beyond. Generosity is the, the heart of God. Grace produces generosity. Th- this idea of, of giving always ends up, at least in a lot of the conversations I've had, resulting in the wrong questions that have the wrong spirit behind them. When, when we're talking about giving, there's, there's this question of like, well, how much do I have to give? And do I still have to tithe? And here's the thing. What do I have to do? is not the heart of generosity. It's the heart of religion, and it's the heart of law. Grace says, this is what I think God wants to do through me. <laughs> like that That's the enjoyment of grace. And it's never out of guilt, and it's never out of I gotta. And that's why the Apostle Paul says here in verse 3, I didn't finish the text, he says they gave of their own accord. Apostle Paul didn't make them give anything. He didn't tell them, this is what God teaches you better do it. No, man, like God put the broken pieces of their life back together. God held them together when the pressure was too much. God lifted their spirits when they were at rock bottom. And so when they heard that somebody else was hurting, they wanted to bless them with what they had, with what they could. That was their own accord. So it's not about what does God demand and what does God require. It's about It's about generosity. And like when we look at the dictionary, the Merriam-Webster definition of generosity, it's this. Generosity, it says, is a readiness to give more than is necessary or expected without hesitation. (laughs) Generosity says this isn't about what somebody's required of me. This isn't about what God's demanding of me or what some preacher guilted me into doing. Like this is something's happened in my life that's overflowing in to want to help hurting people. I've seen God's grace work in my life in such a way. And by the way, I believe that's the only way to have any joy in giving is when it's a gracious heart of generosity. Joy because of grace. So how is it possible that they could be under that much pressure and be at that rock bottom and still have joy that would overflow into generosity? How is that possible? First of all, it's just the work of a God of grace, his grace in our life. And second, it's because they had their priorities right. They gave themselves first to God. Look at verse number five. Um, we see the Apostle Paul says that this, this giving that they gave, was not as we expected. It's pretty cool, right? When he's like, whoa, they gave what? <laughs> not as we expected. But, and it's almost like he's saying, but here's the deal. It just makes sense because they gave themselves first to the Lord. I grew up hearing preachers talk whenever they talk about money a lot about first fruits. The idea that that in the Bible the term first fruits was because so many people made a living by growing everything that they would eat and often growing what they would sell to be able to afford to live. And so the biblical principle of first fruits was, man, whatever God provides for us, the first thing we want to do is given offering to the Lord. That's the the principle of first fruits. And so when I was growing up, they would say, the first thing you should do when you get your paycheck is you should sit down with your checkbook. And I know you don't know what a paycheck is because you have direct deposit. And I know you don't know what a checkbook is because you just do everything online. But back in the day, there was this little paper stuff that was kind of like money, but you could write on it. But anyways, um, they would say, sit down. And the first check you should write is your tithe to the Lord. And the second thing you should give is support the cause of global missions or whatever organization is feeding the hungry or doing some good in the world. And then pay what you got to pay your bills and whatever. 
that was their their kind of modern picture of first fruits. But the fact is, I, I think that kind of misses the mark a little. I, I want you to hear something that maybe you never thought you'd hear a preacher say. I don't think God wants us to tithe first. I don't think God wants us to do our charitable giving first. Yeah, I know, right? Crazy. No, I, I think he wants us first. <laughs> like he wants to know that, that, that we're fully surrendered to him. Like, God, I'm, I'm yours. You've done so much for me. You've been so good to me. You've so worked in my life. You've rescued the broken parts of me. You've seen the, the days where I, where I have the most regret and guilt and shame, and you've blessed me in it, and you've restored me in it, and you've loved me at my worst, and you've pursued me when I was so checked out or so disinterested. You've, you've been so faithful and you've been so good that I can't help but say anything other than, here I am. Like, whatever you want from me, I am all in because I trust you and because I love you and because I want other people to experience you. First, we give ourselves to God. And I believe that giving is a really hard and a really difficult and a really awkward conversation whenever we start with giving. But if we start with giving ourselves over to God, then giving becomes like the natural common sense overflow. Like, being generous to other hurting people who bear the image of the God that we've already given our life over to. God, I'm yours. I want to be used by you and and want to be a difference maker for you. But if I've already first given my heart over to something else, it's going to be a really difficult journey. Then we're going to talk about giving as like this action, not as like a symptom. See, I believe generosity is a symptom of a life that's enjoying the grace of God and fully given over to him. Generosity is a symptom. It's not a thing. It's not something we muster up. It's not something we force ourselves to do. We're all about symptoms right now with COVID, right? Like, have your symptoms gone away? Okay, you can return. Well, which symptoms do you have? And how many symptoms do you have? And maybe we're focused right now on the wrong symptoms, right? There's a lot of hurting people. Do we sense a symptom in us of generosity that we want to help those who are hurting? Man, there's a whole lot of y'all. Like the minute you found out I had COVID, you were texting Marisa, hey, what do you need from Walmart? What, what do you need us to, to porch drop for you? Man, that, that kind of generosity shows me there's something bigger in you than you. Like you're clearly having a heart that overflows to other people who are in a mess right now. That's the, that's the generosity of grace at work in somebody. And that's the posture of a heart that's given over to God. But if I have given first my heart over to the American dream, because the whole message of the American dream is work hard and do your best so that you can get more stuff. (laughs) Like it literally is about the opposite of generosity. What can I accumulate? And if I've given my heart over to getting the maximum house I can barely afford and the most expensive car I can barely afford and the coolest stuff I can barely afford and because that's the American dream – then generosity, the life of generosity, has been choked out. If I've given myself first over to living for me and what I want, if I've given myself first and foremost to building a kingdom of self, then talking about giving or helping hurting people or being generous, and that's off the table. That's why I think the the grace of God leads us to that spirit-given disposition of God, I'm yours. That's his grace at work. Warren Rearsby said a, a spiritual church is a generous church. 
Like when we're walking in the Spirit and when we're swimming in grace, man, when, when we're fully given over to Him. I just believe the overflow is generosity. And part of the reason I believe that is because I've watched it. Like I've seen I've seen it. I've seen that the people who have uh, generosity in action, they're, they're the people that I watch pouring their life out to connect with Jesus. Like they, they discipline themselves to work at it and invest in their relationship with God. And they're like the first people who want to serve hurting people. Like in a sacrificial, it costs them something kind of way. They, they will give up time to, to love on people, like for real in action. They, they want to thrive in helping other people. They're the first ones who volunteer to serve. And those same people, some of you I've watched, are also the same people who tend to be the most obedient to God when it comes to finances. I just don't think that's a coincidence. I think when we're given over to the heart of God, to, to loving him and loving the people who bear his image, I think it's just a natural overflow. But here's the thing, and here's, here's kind of the final big thought for this morning. Here's the thing about giving ourselves first to God. I don't really want to argue about the Church of Macedonia because I've never been there. I've been close. Kosovo is pretty close. But I've never been there. And I for sure wasn't there back when these believers lived there. And I want to be real careful that I'm not arguing with the Bible. But when the Apostle Paul says they gave themselves first to the Lord, I want to kind of respectfully be like, uh, not really. And I'm not being... Like, that's not heresy. Hang with me. Technically, Jesus gave himself first to them. Man, that's that whole idea about giving first our hearts over to him. Is the motivation to do that and and, and the awakeness to do that is because he gave himself first to us. As we looked this morning at at Macedonian math, I, I want you to think about that for a minute. Maybe it's not really actually Macedonian math. Maybe it's the Messiah's math. Remember again our, our generosity sandwich in our math equation? The, the concept of severe affliction, abundance of joy, and extreme poverty equaling, like the, the sum of that is a wealth of generosity? That's the heart of Jesus. That's, that's his love for you. That's how he gave himself up for you. Because when we, when we think about his severe affliction, Isaiah 53 talks about him being wounded, him being crushed, him being bruised for you. I mean, that, that was severe affliction and wounding like we can't imagine. But there was extreme joy. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 12 tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. And then when it talks about extreme poverty, nobody's ever been richer than him, (laughs) and he made himself poor so that, generosity, he could give. His grace, his love, his hope, all the things we want to talk about, to you. Make it accessible to us. His extreme poverty, I want us to look back to our our text But I want to look a little further down in the text. Look at verse number 9. Verse number 9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that though he was rich, yet for your sake, for your sake, he became poor. But that wasn't the end of the story. Here's why he did it. Here's the generosity in it. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's what Jesus has done for us. And I know people don't like when churches talk about money, but money's a pretty cool glimpse of whether or not we're living the Christian life. Because the generosity of Jesus is really reflected in the gospel of Jesus. That, that he really did face pressure like we can't know and rock bottom like we can't imagine with joy. That overflowed in a generosity that's our whole reason for living. It's all of our hope tied up in that generosity. And so I believe he's inviting us through the work of his grace, not to muster up or to, to do the work of giving, but to let his grace overflow in us as we give, not first to an organization or a cause or even the church of Jesus Christ, but we give first to him. And then all that other giving it's just an overflow of generosity. That's the generosity of grace at work in us and through us. Let me share this story and, and then we'll be done. When I was on staff at my first church uh, that I, I ever served at while I was still in Bible college, it's, it's the church I was working at when Maurice and I started dating. And then we got married. And, um, and then not long after we got married, our youth pastor moved out of state. And so they asked me to also help serve our students. Um, and it was the first time, I, I mean, I was 21 years old, I think, 22 years old, I guess. Um, I was barely older than them. But while we were serving in that ministry, all of a sudden a single mom with a teenage son and daughter uh, started attending our church. And as we got to know them, what we found out is they were actually in a program in the state of Florida where they had been relocated and were hiding out from an abusive dad and an abusive husband. And the, the state had this program where, where when, when that man who was being abusive um, hadn't gotten help, they would relocate the family to essentially hide them out. And the young man's name, the, the teenage boy's name was George. Taken away from that difficult position with his father, his mother had to start over again, was struggling financially. He's now just living with his sister and his mom. We kind of just took George in and, and tried to kind of be a father figure in his life. And Maurice and I tried to love on that family. And we did some fundraising stuff for them to, to help him out with stuff. And then I was, I was having a birthday. And some of the people in the church gave little cards and gift cards and some cool stuff. But to this day, that was 20 years ago. To this day, I remember one birthday present above them all. George gave me a pair of sunglasses. Now, they weren't super expensive. At the time, that would have been Oakley's. They weren't Oakley's. They weren't Ray-Bans. But they were like actual metal. Hang with me here. Every pair of glasses I had had in my entire life at that point had been the plastic ones from Walmart, <laughs> right? Or they were hand-me-downs from my older brothers. I had never taken um, an interest enough in sunglasses to spend like big money on them. It just wasn't a thing. And these were like pretty nice sunglasses, they were by far the nicest sunglasses I had ever owned in my life up to that point. But the fact that they were that generous wasn't just because they were like valuable or nice. It's I knew their financial situation. 
they weren't in extreme poverty, but they were struggling. And it's because I knew their circumstance. Man, they were under pressure. They had faced some serious affliction. But in the relationship that, that God had built through us there, I saw out of that teenager's heart a clear evidence of an overflow of generosity. That's the work of God's grace in the life of a hurting young man. And man, I'll tell you, it meant the world to me. I still have those glasses. I don't wear them much, but I'm never going to get rid of them because they just meant that much. And that's the thing. Even when we're walking through difficult times, when we allow God to be at work in us and through us to other hurting people, it makes a difference that lasts, that never goes away, that can change a life, can encourage somebody in ways we don't even know. And with all the hurt around us today, I believe we've got a profound opportunity in front of us. Those of us who are swimming in the grace of Jesus to let that overflow, to let the fact that that we're his, we belong to him, overflow to generosity on our part in a way that just might for somebody change their world. That's the work of grace through us. That is the generosity of grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time together in your word. And most of all, thank you for your profound generosity to us. What you've given us costs more than we could ever begin to imagine. And God, what I pray is that we wouldn't be content with just a little bit of that grace. You've gone to too great of lengths for us to not enjoy it. God, may we be in the deep end of the pool in walking in your grace that you've made available to us. May our worries and our fears and our hurts uh, and the junk in our life, the living for lesser things, may it not uh, choke out the enjoyment, the, the abundance of joy of your grace. God, may your grace continue to, to point us to the fact that you're the one thing worthy of truly giving our lives over for. And in that giving, will you give through us through a wealth of generosity. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, the encouragement isn't be a good boy or be a good girl and you better give. This morning, the encouragement is let's look to the God of all grace. It's his goodness and it's in his giving that we find our motivation and we find our life. Let's celebrate together the goodness of our God.